Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Tim Cahill. Mr. Cahill is an acclaimed journalist, author, and co-founder of Outside Magazine. In 1987, he interviewed Kubrick for Rolling Stone magazine. I was a graduate of San Francisco State University uh, with a graduate degree in creative writing, and uh, and I made about $700 writing fiction my uh, first two years of uh, of trying to write, and I saw this nonfiction opportunity of this little magazine called Rolling Stone, and. Uh, so I applied for a job, got it, and uh, eventually wrote a whole lot of stories for them over the years. You really did, and, and remarkable stories. I, and I would imagine that part part of that is because of it, it was a remarkable time to cover that scene, the, the music oh, scene. Oh, yes. Uh, the music scene, but... Uh, it, we were serious journalists and, uh, uh, you know, you had to start in rock and roll, or at least I did. And, uh, and I did two years of, uh, rock and roll profiles, traveling with the band, that kind of thing. And, uh, um, eventually they let me start doing, um, other kinds of things. And part of the other things they did, they seemed to think that I was okay profiling, uh, movie stars so i did people like jack nicholson and dustin hoffman and uh, uh eastwood I think, yeah, well yes clint eastwood of course uh, and uh, uh i think the only woman that they ever sent me to interview that, from the movie world was uh mariel hemingway so mm-hmm. well I- i'll tell you uh one of the remarkable pieces that you did that that isn't part of the music scene was the uh, the Guyana the the People's Temple, um, uh, which I just read that and it, it was staggering to me. Uh, I mean that that I can't imagine the mark that must have left. Uh, it did, and it did for many years, but um, uh, they. It sent me reeling off into the dark side for a little bit. Um, I eventually did a story book um, about uh, the serial killer John Wayne Gacy in Chicago, and I think that stemmed from a fascination with the, um, you know, the the dark side, let's call it. Um, But after I finished three years of research on you know, going through the sewer of that man's mind, I just said, uh, you know what? I'm also doing stories for Outside Magazine. These are outdoors, and they're healthy, and uh, um, they don't deal with the darkest parts of uh, uh, humanity. Listen, here's the way I, I went into the Gacy book 
believing that there was no such thing as evil. And when I came out, uh, I changed. So, yeah. Well, on to lighter subjects. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because I, I'm not exactly sure when when you left to kind of be one of the founding editors of The Outside magazine, but it seems like your Kubrick interview, if it was in 87, it, it, was, a, it was a little bit from when you departed Rolling, you departed Rolling Stone by that point, hadn't you? Um, no, I'd never really departed. I mean, I... Uh, in I think it was '79, Rolling Stone moved to New York, and I did not uh, want to live in New York. Eventually, I ended up in Montana, where I'm very been very happy for over 30 years. But uh, um, I, I didn't sever my ties with Rolling Stone. Outside Magazine was a um, uh, it began as a, the brainchild of Jan Wunner, the editor-publisher of Rolling Stones, who put three of us, at the time, young employees, uh, to come up with a new outdoor magazine. So when you when you had the when you were given the opportunity to interview Kubrick, were you initially? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you you get intimidated after the personalities that you've profiled throughout your career, but uh, what were your initial uh, feelings about about uh, meeting him? Um, I had assumed, having read many interviews with him, uh, you know, doing my research, um, and they sound like the philosophical um, uh, uh, maunderings of, uh, uh, you know, chess masters, a couple of chess masters talking or something. So I didn't know if I could uh, be that kind of interviewer. What I like is just stories. Tell me a little bit about yourself, things like that. So, yeah, I had some apprehension that uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, required um, uh, an intellectual type approach, which is all I've ever seen written about him. And yet, from the from the very first question, it seemed like he disarmed that perception right away. He, he did. He did. He, um, uh, you know, let me tell you the the, the work up to the story before we get into what sure. the story said. Um, I was sent over to London to interview uh, Kubrick, um, and uh, I, you know, got a hotel. I was working for Rolling Stone, and uh, and I called the publicity people and said, "Well, I'm here. This this uh, interview that you've all okayed. Um, here I am." And no callback. No callback. Uh, well, Stanley, uh, well, he isn't, uh, you know, excuse after excuse. I was there for about eight days. And I said, well, this, and, you know, well, it was a nice week in London for me on someone else's dime, but uh, uh, I'm used to getting the story, and I was a little bit pissed off. And uh, 
So when I talked to the publicity people, I said, well, I'm leaving on the flight at four o'clock or something uh, from Heathrow. And uh, they said, stop by, I can't remember, it was part of the studios. Um, what are the famous studios there? Um, anyway, it, it was it was part of the studio complex. Uh, uh, and uh, they said, stop by, um, Mr. Kubert, we'll see you. So we sat down and started talking. And I mean, we just had this, uh, and he disarmed me immediately uh, with, uh, no, you don't have to be uh, intellectual and you don't have to ask me uh, what this means and what that means. And uh, I believe he said, I've always been felt cornered and challenged by those kinds of questions. So the questions I asked seemed to be the one he, ones he wanted to answer. You talked a lot about, obviously, because it's for Rolling Stone, you talked a lot about the use of music uh, in, in his films, um, which is an aspect of his work that's commented on quite a bit. What was your take on his uh, investment in kind of the rock and roll culture? He was uh, pretty much he was pretty much aware of it. Um, uh, I think I asked him, uh, Nancy Sinatra's this, "This These Boots Are Made for Walking" is uh, prominent in the film, and my thought was, uh, "Gee, Vietnam, The Doors," um, but he said, "Well, you know, we checked out what was." I'll bet he he didn't tell me this, but I'll bet he found out what was the number one song, um, you know, at the Battle of Way at, during the Battle of Way at, in the United States. Mm. That's, yeah, a, that's was, only my guess. Well, but I, I ask him why not the. I'm sorry. I ask him why not the Doors because that that just was my thing, and he said, "Well, if our research is right, this is you know." This was current at the time, and and, and I suppose um, that was. Uh, I've, I've written a couple of uh, IMAX films, and I see how the music fits in. And uh, sometimes a song that I don't think um, is uh, is a perfect song in itself is a perfect song for the film. So. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with him about any of his picks of the music. And his, and, and that Nancy Sinatra song, it's such an interesting transition because that's, that's what leads us from the boot camp into, into Vietnam as we're following the, the hooker walking, <laughs> walking up to the, uh, the truth. There is a bit of humor about it. Yeah. But yeah, there is some, some humor about it. Um, so when you, I, I yeah. mean, I, of course, you, you had seen the movie before you spoke to Kubrick. What were your impressions of the actual film? Um, I had a weird sense of incompleteness about it. It felt like there should be a third segment. There's boot camp, there's Vietnam, and there's there's one other segment. I mean this was based on a book and that was the way it was written. Um, 
I don't know why why it was, but uh, uh, I, I I loved the film. I loved the performances. I loved Lee Emery as everybody does. But uh, uh, I uh, um, I had a feeling. I had an incomplete feeling. I don't know if anybody ever, I've never seen that in any reviews. Did he ask for your thoughts on the film or did did he seem to want to know what you thought of it? Um, I don't think he cared what I thought of it. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't talk about it. Uh, we did actually we did. Yeah. Uh, but he just talked about, uh, as I recall, um, he talked about choices that he'd made. Um, and I don't believe that I really ask many questions about, uh, the film itself. Mm-hmm. Well, you talked about, uh, you're right. You did talk about the initial critical reception to his films and, uh, to all of his films. And then in terms of full metal jacket, the kind of the subplots that he avoided, uh, because a lot of Vietnam stories uh, include drug use, uh, and so you mm-hmm. asked about that specifically. Well, his response was that uh, um, he had seen pictures and reviewed footage from uh, the Battle of Way, and uh, and that the the Marines that he saw were um, highly disciplined, uh, you know. Uh, the uh, you know, flak vests, the uh, bulletproof vests, um, you know, fully fastened, uh, fully prepared. Uh, so uh, he, yeah, he didn't, he, if, at that battle, he didn't want to deal with, um, with the particular question of drug use in, uh, in Vietnam by American soldiers, because I think he thought that that was not, that that wasn't happening during the battle. And he did not want to, uh, he had a, he had a fairly, um, good impression of the Marines who fought that war. And you guys also discussed, um, some of the conceptions popular conceptions about him, uh, misconceptions. Or misconceptions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, he had fun answering those questions. You know, like, <laughs> I I heard, you know, I said, well, you know, can I, can I ask these uh, questions that uh, people tell me? And he said, sure, go ahead. And uh, I said, you know, well, you have a chauffeur and you don't let him drive more than uh, – 35 clicks an hour and uh, you wear a football helmet in the car and he just found that pretty hilarious. <laughs> Thinks he think I think he said something like, no, I have a uh, pretty fast car and I sometimes drive it a hundred clicks an hour down the, uh, you know, uh, the highway here. Uh, so. Well, it's interesting because he wasn't, a director that necessarily sought the spotlight. And I think whenever he had to promote one of his movies, uh, he kind of did, did so begrudgingly, but because of that, there was such a, a mythic kind of quality that, uh, surrounded him. 
but he but when you met him face to face he carried none of that right mythic no i did not i did not see that i mean i saw a man who uh, was uh, a little bit crumpled and uh, with with a you know no meticulously combed hair and uh, and a and a pen that had kind of bled some ink into the bottom of his pocket. Uh, so, um, in that, I mean, if if somebody thinks you've got to dress up to uh, get interviewed by Rolling Stone, well, then maybe that's a peculiarity. But uh, uh, otherwise, no, I didn't see anything, and and we actually we actually had a good time talking, and. Of of course, uh, because his hatred of do, of the process of doing the interview, um, uh, now my plane was ready, and now we were, you know, able to talk uh, effortlessly with one another, and I did not feel peculiarities uh, that uh, that are often mentioned uh, at all. I can tell you there was a peculiarity that went on. Um, uh, um, Sometime after the story was written, um, before it was written, you know, you'd, you'd do an interview, you'd negotiate with them a little bit. And he said, will I be able to um, approve my quotes? Well, almost every story that, uh, you know, story that I've ever done for Rolling Stone, and uh, they've had some recent troubles, but when I was working there, the fact-checking department was... Uh, you don't mess with the fact checking department. And I said, yeah, they'll, they'll call you and, um, and check all your quotes. Well, I write the story, I get it in, provide the, um, taped transcripts, uh, the, the, the tapes and the transcript and, uh, Rolling Stone fact checker said, that's all we need. It's not our policy to call back in a taped interview where the uh, interviewee has agreed to be interviewed. And I had promised Stanley Kubrick that he was going to get to do And now Rolling Stone had this interview and they liked it and they were not going to fire it. And so I'm getting blasted from uh, Kubrick's people. I'm, begging Rolling Stone, just, just give them that. But they didn't want to do it because quite often when you give someone, and perhaps maybe they thought that uh, Kubrick was, as he is a perfectionist, he would, uh, you know, he said those things, they're on tape, there, there is nothing, uh, you know, but make it a little bit better by doing it. This, you know, this is what they're thinking Stanley Kubrick is going to do to the, uh, uh, to the interview. And, uh, so they, uh, uh, didn't do it. And as I believe, uh, Kubrick's people were angry with me. I was angry with the Rolling Stone because I just give it to him. You know, it's that, right. Uh, um, but here's the good part about it. Um, what was his next film? Was it Eyes Wide Open or Eyes Wide Shut? His last film, twelve years later. Yeah. Well, um, 
it was either then or or maybe in maybe in promoting um full metal jacket anyway i got a whole uh as one of the people on the press list i got a whole press packet about the movie and i was surprised to see my rolling stone interview uh included in that package without uh any lines crossed out or stuff like that. So I, um, I gather he liked the interview. He liked what it said. I, I think he, he wouldn't have a reason to have any problem with it at all. It, uh, I, I mean, it, it demystifies a lot of the misconceptions out there about him. It, it uh, humanizes him um, and it, while maintaining the integrity of, of you know, his work and his intelligence. I, I think it's a perfect interview with him. Oh, thank you very much. But but did you feel, when you're interviewing someone like Kubrick, who, who might be thought of as kind of an unapproachable guy, did you feel a rapport with him? Did you leave that interview thinking, okay, I definitely have at least a version of Stanley Kubrick that I know that I can commit to in this in this piece? Yes, um, I felt that, uh, um, well, the the interview got easier and easier as the time went by, and I think you see it in the piece a little bit because, but uh, it's either halfway through or three-quarters of the way through, I start dealing with the misconceptions. And he was he was actually quite amused at some of the things that uh, uh, he proceeds to shoot down um, during the time. So basically I felt I could say anything. Um, I myself am more interested in story and in telling a story and letting you see a person through a story um, than in an intellectual disputation, which Frankly, I'm unequipped for so, 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 and it seemed like it seemed like Stanley Kubrick was um, uh, felt it felt easier for him to tell stories than to um, answer, uh, you know, metaphysical puzzles. Uh, At least that's the sense I got. I felt, um, and I'd heard. uh, when I left, uh, the greatest compliment uh, uh, you could probably get from Stanley Kubrick uh, said to one of his publicity people, "That wasn't so bad." <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's encouraging. <laughs> so, uh, t- did you? I mean, do you keep tapes of those, or d- did you just give them up to Rolling Stone, or do you still have your interview tapes? I'll bet I still have my interview tapes. It would be wow. Oh no! Now I now I now I hear salivating there. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, um, not, I, I I wouldn't try to do that. Ask that of you, but uh, it, it is interesting because there are so few um, examples out there of his voice, um, and uh, so anytime there's a there's a new little snippet of audio of Kubrick speaking, all the fans jump on it like it's uh, 
something very savory. So, I mean, there is definitely an interest out there to, to hear him in his own voice talking about his work. Um, yeah, I have the, uh, I, I don't know. I haven't checked, um, but I've kept, I've kept my notes, uh, all my notes from every story from, oh, 1979 or so, and they're in a, uh, you know, there's there's the newer ones here upstairs in my office and the older ones uh, piled in boxes upon boxes upon boxes in my basement, and if I went through them, I could probably find uh, Stanley Kubrick and the, um, uh, what kind of tapes are there, they're, you know, you know the ones the ones you used to put in an eight track all right okay okay those kind okay. of okay. those kind of tapes well if you ever do happen upon them uh there there would definitely be an interest out there for it um uh, just to let you know uh but uh, okay no, about... i have i have i have i have i have a lot of tapes with the o j simpson before uh I know. before the murders and stuff so you interviewed him in '77, right? Um, I can't, I frankly can't recall when I interviewed him, but it was certainly before um, the murder of his wife. And uh, so, let, let, tell me a little bit about uh, your your post Rolling Stone journalism career. I mean, you've 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 gone into travel writing. Uh, you've done some really exciting things. How, how does this this I would imagine fulfills your sense of adventure in life as well as your passion for writing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I could go any place in the world that I wanted to go on somebody else's money and look into anything I wanted to look into. Now, do you think there's a better job in the United States journalism? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's and it was great. It was great. It was great while it lasted, and it lasted about uh, two decades. Mm. So, what what are your what are your passions today? Um, well, I uh, uh, at the age of uh, seventy three, I'm not doing the uh, long arduous. Uh, expeditions that I used to do for Outside Magazine, although I just wrote uh, uh, a piece for their um, 40th anniversary issue, and since I was there at the beginning and was one of the people that formulated the way the magazine uh, should look and feel, um, it seemed only right and proper that i do it, and also I'd had uh, an experience um, uh, two years ago, um, I rafted the Colorado River um, and in the winter and kind of uh, got tossed out of the boat in Lava Falls, which is the nastiest rapid on the river. And uh, um, through a series of swims, got out somehow after. Uh, getting out of the river, I fell over and died. Um, 
So we had people actually, you know, medical professionals. I mean, a, a, a working nurse, no pulse, no heartbeat, guy doing CPR, breaking all my ribs. And so this was big news for a while. You know, uh, he dies, uh, and then you know, I, was, I was gone for, I don't know, people say, People say four minutes, some people say seven, but you know, nobody took a stopwatch to it. I like the big number. Somebody said 17. If I'm going to be dead for a while, I want 17 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And okay, I'll tell you quickly. I, no, I did not see anything there. I didn't see uh, a light to float to. I didn't see, um, uh, you know, pets bounding across the rainbow bridge or uh, beckoning figures, none of that. Um, it was just, it wasn't black, it wasn't gray, it just wasn't anything. And, okay, so a helicopter comes in, gets me into ICU, boom, I'm okay. Uh, you know, or, so I was sick for a while about that, but um, mainly from the broken ribs. But then December, um, I took another trip on the same damn uh, uh, river with the same folks, and uh, we broke through the those rapids in Lava Falls where I died two years before um, in about 25 seconds flat. So we paddled over to the beach at the bottom of Lava Falls, which is called Tequila Beach, um, because people celebrate running those scary rapids there. And, uh, well, in this case, it was well-named. Oh, my goodness. So when you re- when you returned there two years later, I mean, what, was it a question of kind of of conquering that place uh, with that traumatic? No, you happened? don't, you don't, you, you don't conquer a place like that. You, they either, it either lets you through or uh, you uh, uh, yeah. don't don't get let through. You don't conquer. The, 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 there is there is there are forces uh, entirely beyond human control. Um, oh. So that's what you're putting yourself against. And uh, you know, when I got down to Tequila Beach this time, I you know we were all toasting each other and. Uh, and I toasted Lava Falls saying, well, um, uh, you got me the first time. You let me through this time. It's one-to-one. I figured we're tied. Let's have a drink. (laughs) 